Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. But if you would just bow your heads with me one more time, um, we can dive into God's word together. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, What a sweet, sweet gift you've given to us that you have not left us without a window into who you are where we can weekly come and daily submit ourselves to hear from you, to see you, to know you, and to be ministered to through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we thank you so much for the gifts that you have given us in your word, which connects to us relationally through Jesus Christ. And we pray that because of that, our relationships towards one another will be distinct. We ask that you accomplish all that you seek to do today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, we are back in the book of Ephesians. We have two weeks left in this book, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And in these last two weeks, um, this being the third of that, uh, we are looking at Paul addressing relationships specifically. And he's talking about how our relationships are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've been interrupted in these last few weeks. Johnny preached last week. Stephen, um, who's leading our GCF campus ministry, is going to be speaking next week to kind of kick off uh, the fall season on campus. And then we'll resume after that. But it's important to note that though we're interrupted in reading this, Paul sees this whole section as one important line of thought. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church, to people just like you, and he's saying, be wise, for the days are evil. Make the best use of your time as you labor for God's glory. And then Paul says, what is it that it takes? What does it mean for us as God's people who believe in Jesus Christ to make the best use of our time? He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit that God gives you when you are saved through Jesus Christ is something that is meant to influence your day-to-day life. We are to be wise and to think of how it is God would like us to act in our specific circumstances. And Paul gives the most practical, the most daily way that this influences us. The most practical way to walk out a spirit-filled life, if you're a believer, is actually in the context of your relationships. The way you interact with people at work, in your marriage, your roommates, and your kids. And we know this because he concludes his description of spirit-filled living with this phrase. In chapter 5, verse 21, Paul finishes kind of mid-thought. He says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this idea of mutual submission and reverence, this fear, this respect, this worship of Jesus is kind of like this gospel pipe cleaner that Paul is now pulling through the entire plumbing system of our relational networks so that we might work as we ought to work, that we might interact with one another as the gospel calls us to interact. Because the truth is that the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, that that good news actually makes our relationships distinct. It changes things. And so Paul is beginning to, or continuing to define this. What does a spirit-filled life affect? Where does submission to one another and reverence for Jesus actually begin to change things? Last time we were together, we looked at how it changes the relationship between husbands and wives. 
Next time we're in Ephesians, we're going to see how it changes the relationship between bondservants and masters. And today, we're going to see how it changes the relationship between children and parents. Now, in this room, specifically as the, at this season, there's people from all different walks of life. There are college students who are out of the home. There are single and individual or single and married couples who have no kids. There are parents of adult children, and there are individuals whose parents have passed away. And if that's you, if you fall into one of those categories, um, there's a tendency in our own heart to kind of take a free pass Sunday and to think to listen for somebody else. But because this is God's very word, it is good to everyone. Regardless of where you are, this is a gift. And so what I want to give before we start uh, looking at this in more detail is to give three reasons why you, regardless of your station in life, ought not to just tune out a passage which seems to be about parenting. The first reason is that each of us have been profoundly impacted by our parents, either positively or negatively. In fact, if you look at secular research, psychologically or economically, there is nothing more influential in your life than your childhood. It either sets you up to have a life as a prison or life as a palace. It is indelible. It has an irreversible effect on who you are. But despite the relationship you had with your parents, despite the influence they had in your life, this passage holds out the hope that the relationship you might have with God as your father is more powerful. There's a greater power in this world able to redeem and restore even humanity's most influential relationships. That's the first reason. The second reason is that perhaps you're a parent and you, at whatever state your kids are in, you have already had a profoundly influential weight on your child's life. And maybe when you step back and you consider that influence, you say, well, it's mostly good. And you're prone to boast in it. Or maybe when you look at that influence, you say, it's mostly less than good. And perhaps you're prone to guilt and to regret. But despite the effect, however mixed it may have been, you had on your children, the gospel still has a greater power in your child's life. And so for you as a parent, there's humility and there's hope for you in this text, regardless of where you are and where your children are. And lastly, it takes a church to parent well. Paul opens this text by specifically speaking to children. And in doing that, we know that Paul is affirming two things. One, that he expects children to be in church, that this is important for them. And two, that he sees them as an important member of the body of Christ. Which means, if you're in here and you do not have kids, that Paul expects the church to be a place where parenting is corporately carried. Where parents have supporters and they have helpers and they have encouragers. And kids have gospel-centered role models. They need unrelated individuals to become, through the blood of Jesus Christ, gospel-centered aunts and uncles, committed to helping their parents and supporting the costly call to disciple them. And you see, God has blessed our church with a large number of college students and with young adults. And if that's you, I want to tell you that our kids are watching you, that our junior hires notice the way you interact with one another when you come here, that our senior hires are looking at how you view church, how you come into church, 
how groggy or sleepy you may seem at church. And they're reading it into the priorities they ought to have in college. And so it's wise for you to consider what it is that you are showing to them. It is to be vigilant to say, what is it that I am presenting to kids as a role model in their life? You see, there are children in this church that aren't your children, but we were once not God's children, and he still cared for us. And so at Sovereign Hope, as we want to champion a healthy church, that includes everybody being involved in the process and prayers of parenting. So this is good for all of us. But with that said, here's what we're going to see today as it relates specifically to kids and parents in verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians 6. We're going to see three things. And these are them. The three main points, if you're a kid taking notes, is this. Is that the fruit of obedience is joy. The goal of parenting is to raise disciples. And the gospel is the fullest experience of parenting. The fruit of obedience is joy. The goal of parenting is to raise disciples. And the gospel is the fullest experience of parenting. And so again, let's look at our text that Devin just read for us. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it might go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the first point today, Paul is speaking to you who are children. And he says this. He says in a high level that the fruit of obedience is joy. The fruit of obedience is joy. And there is a distinct structure Paul is doing in this three-part relational section where just as he did with wives and husbands, just as he's going to do next time with bond servants and masters, Paul begins by speaking to the one who is under authority and then zooming out to talk to the one who is in authority. And only when we see both sides does the great picture of the gospel begin to fully make sense. And Paul's command here to children is twofold. Obey and honor. Obey your parents and honor your father and mother. Now, we need to, to a degree, decide who it is that Paul is talking to here. I haven't met somebody who hasn't at one point been a child. And so who is he talking to? Is he talking to children at home? Is he talking to adult children? Well, the truth is, yes and no. You see, in the Roman society that Paul was writing, legally, a child was under the authority of their parent until their parent died. That's how it worked. You stop listening to mom and dad when your parents die, which is how it's going to be in my home. But culturally, jokes aside, in our society, it's different. 18 is the year where we've decided that you can be independent from your parents. You can make decisions without your parents' consent uh, to marry and to do things like that. And so the beautiful benefit of God's word is when this was written some 2,000 years ago, 50 years into its publication, people weren't panicking asking God for a revised version. God's word is capable to speak to all cultures. It was in God's wisdom that he didn't provide for us a strict minimum age of what this might look like. So what this means for us is that where our cultures individually might decide where a child might be free and independent from their parents, there is still a universal call to all children to honor your parents. And so we have in this room a room full of adult children who are outside of their parents' authority. 
And I want to ask you, what is the posture of your heart towards your parents? You might have had the worst experience in childhood. Your parents might be to you the most despicable of all people you've ever met. But God here is calling you to honor them. Why? Because God gave you to them, and he gave them to you. We all know the unfortunate reality that we can't pick our parents, but God did. And in that relationship that God designed, our responsibilities that we see here towards both parties, and even if one side is lapse in their responsibility, it does not mean that you have a pass to no longer do your responsibility. That doesn't mean you have to be best friends with your parents. That doesn't mean that you have to look at all the bad things that potentially they did and see them as good or act like they didn't exist. But what it does mean is that there's no need and no benefit for you to harbor in your heart a vindictive and disrespectful attitude towards your parents. And I imagine that there are some people in this room today who need to go to God with that anger. Go to God with the anger you have towards one or towards both of your parents and you need to lay it before God. And you need to realize that whatever wrong was done, it will be punished ultimately. It will be made right either at the final judgment or Lord willing when your parents cast that sin onto Jesus Christ. And for some of you, to start here, it means that you begin to go back towards your parents and to ask God to help your heart with them. And if that's you, please talk to your community group leader. Talk to an elder in here. We would want to help bring that reconciliation back so that you are no longer harboring hatred or sin towards your parents. So that's for all of us in here who have had parents at one point. But now I want to speak specifically to students and kids who are still in the home, which I'm sure is Paul's general audience he's speaking to as well. And Paul says, to you who are still in the home, who are under the authority of your parents, obey your parents and honor them. And he gives two reasons. The first we see in verse 1 is because it's right, he says. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. To obey your parents is the right thing to do. God is the one who invented the parent and child relationship. There are not, in the parenting sphere, we're not grown by farmers. We're not given out by vending machines. God has designed it that you would be a child that is brought into the world by parents. That is the brilliant, beautiful, and perfect plan of God. He knits you together, not mechanically in an impersonal process, but in the womb of your mother, so that you might have life and that you might obey your parents as your parents seek to care for you. That's God's ideal. And we see how important it is to understand God's role in this parent-child relationship when we look ahead to Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 20, where he says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I imagine if you live at home with your parents, there are times where your parents ask you to do something and you just don't want to do it. At that moment in your life, the understanding that you could please your parent seems to be the most arbitrary thought process you've ever had. Why do I care about pleasing my parent? But here, God is actually connecting, kids, your obedience to your parents towards the worship you have towards God. 
In times where we have broken, imperfect parents, God is calling you to please him, to worship him. This is why Paul gives that phrase. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. Your ability to obey your parents is actually a continuation of what you're doing right now. You come to church and you hear God's word and you sing these songs or you go to kids' ministry and you learn the wonderful things of what Jesus has done and you worship. When you are in the home, your obedience is an act of worship. If you love Jesus, if you see that he has died for your sins and the Holy Spirit is doing wonderful things in your heart, Jesus will help you do this. Jesus helps us do what's right even when it's hard. And what's right in this circumstance is for you to obey your parents. God wants you to honor him by listening to your mom and your dad and by having your mom and dad care for you in a way that honors him. And it gets even better for you because not only is it right, not only is it just good for you to obey, but it actually comes with a promise. Not only should you obey because God designed it, but woven into God's beautiful design is that obedience brings with it the very promises of God himself. Look back at Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And then he interrupts himself here. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so we obey because God made it that we would do that. And we also obey because we want to reap the promises of God. We want the reward that God holds out for us in obedience. And what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's actually quoting back from the Ten Commandments. And what he's saying to you kids is that there is no greater commandment for you to be concerned about. This is the best command for you because it comes with a promise. It comes with this wrapped present of joy that is for you to have. Why wouldn't you want to obey this? You see, in a few weeks, we're actually going to start a series in the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll look more in depth at this passage and this theme when we're in that book. But basically, the whole point of Deuteronomy is that Moses is preparing God's people Israel to finally go into the promised land, to go into the place that every Israelite has ever dreamed to be, where everything they've ever wanted will be true. God is going to give it to them. God is going to move away their enemies. He is going to part rivers. He is going to perform miracles. He is going to establish them in their dream land. And Moses says this, he says, if you obey God's word, things will go swimmingly. Things will go so well for you. You can sleep without worry. You can go without danger because you are safe in obeying God. But if you disobey, it will not go well for you. If you disobey, it will be complicated. And enemies will come and terrible things will happen. And what Moses is saying to the Israelites is, in God's obedience, there is this circle where so long as you're in there, you have joy and you have safety and you could rest. God's got it. But when you disobey, you remove yourself from that circle of safety and there comes frustration and a lack of protection and you're made vulnerable. And despite Moses's repeated affirmations of obey and it will be well, disobey and it will be bad, 
The Israelites failed to understand it, and they continued to disobey. But this isn't new. This is exactly what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Obey me, and we will live forever in this perfect world. But disobey, and you will die. You see, what this illustrates is the same lie that Satan uses today on children and Christians everywhere. The greatest lie which has ever been whispered and will be whispered until Jesus comes and silences Satan forever is that disobedience brings you what you really want. The lie is that disobedience gets you joy. Disobedience gives you satisfaction. Disobedience gives you peace. But this is never true. It is never true. Disobedience is always the easiest option on the table. But it's always the costliest decision. Obedience is normally the hardest decision. But in the end, it costs nothing. Because you reap the promise of God. God is for your good. Kids, there will always be in your heart what the Bible calls this sin nature, which when your parents are telling you to do things, your heart will say, I know better than you. Your heart will say, you are withholding joy, and if I disobey, then I will get everything I want. But God has given you, your parents, as imperfect and as human as they are, to prepare you for a life of greater joy. That in obeying them, you might receive the blessings of God. And what does this mean? This doesn't mean you always have the nicest toys or the clearest social calendar, or the best cars, or even a cell phone when you want a cell phone. What it does mean is that as you obey your parents, you are pleasing God. And there is nothing greater for you to do in your life than to please God. That is the best hope that your parents could give you, is that you would desire through Jesus Christ to please God. That is the greatest reward you could ever have. Now, parents, you're welcome. But one quick aside here. Do you model this joyful obedience in your home? Do you see the commands of God given in Scripture, the commands given by your heavenly Father as an ability for you to joyfully trust that God is always working for your good. Is that what your kids see when the word of God is applied in your life? Is it a visible expression of hope in the gospel of Jesus? You see, God wants us to obey. God wants children to obey because God is after your joy. God loves you more than you could ever love you. And God knows what's better for you then you know what's better for you. And this starts in the home that we would obey God and reap his rewards. So that's what Paul is saying to, to you children, that you would trust that obedience is always for your good because that's how God designed it. But now he turns the corner and he begins to address parents by specifically addressing fathers. And we see this uh, in short in verse 4 where Paul says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so what we see next in this text is this. 
is that the goal of parenting is to raise disciples. The goal of parenting is to raise disciples. Now, Paul is pointedly speaking here to fathers. That's the word that he's using. But it doesn't mean he's not also speaking to mothers. Many times in the Greek, uh, these plural, pro, uh, pronoun or plural, plural nouns, like brothers or fathers, often include the idea of sisters and mothers in this passage. But Paul is doing something specific here. We just saw in the text above this, when Paul is talking to wives and to husbands, that the husband is the head of the wife, and now he pulls it into parenting. So, too, do fathers have a unique role in the leadership and spiritual care of their family. There is still a structure which you dads must be aware of. And this reminder of a dad leading in the home has been needed in just about every generation, and it's needed in our generation today. And that's because Paul gives two commands here, one in the negative, do not provoke your child to anger, and one in the positive, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And what's interesting, if you just look at culture, those two commands are often the most neglected by men in our culture. All you have to do is look at sitcoms, and what you'll see is you'll see a father as the general source of anger in a family as he bumbles his way through life, unaware of anyone's needs or desires besides his own. And experience also shows that generally it's the mother who is urging and calling the family to go to church and leading in the spiritual care and discipleship in the home. This isn't to say that mothers can't anger their kids. It's not to say that they shouldn't teach their children. And in fact, Paul speaks to you. If you are a single mother or you are a mother of a husband who is an unbeliever, in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, Paul says, there is grace for you. It is good enough for you. What you have in the gospel is good enough for your kids. Do not become disheartened. The gospel is so much bigger than your circumstance. But Paul is making the point here that you dads have an inescapable role due to the position that God has given to you. So fathers, do not neglect Paul's pointed address here. And now let's together, let's look at his two commands of do not provoke your child to anger and raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now it's important for us to hold those two together, right? Don't anger and raise them up in the instruction of the Lord. Because if the only command God gave to parents was don't make your child angry, life in a way gets a lot easier, doesn't it? We just remove ourselves entirely from the equation. We give them what we want, when they want it. When we see the devious eyes of our toddler or teenager kind of like light up, we just call an impromptu date night. And we walk away blissfully unaware of whatever damage or action there might be that might need correction if we stayed in the house. The problem is, is that this kind of parenting doesn't work. And we know this for two reasons. The first is that in reality, it's impossible. We've seen Willy Wonka. We know if all you do is give your children what they want when they want, they don't become happier, they become angrier. They don't become more well-behaved, they become monsters. I remember uh, a number of years ago, there was a parenting plan that was really popular, um, and I called it the never-know parenting model. And the premise was you don't say no to your kids and instead you let your kids learn through natural consequences. And as I was doing research for this sermon, I went and looked and I found a distinct lack of any such material today. And the only conclusion is, is that those parents are dead. They, 
they have like safety scissors through the temple or something because there's only so much you can ask before a child stabs you. And so like, this is important. It doesn't work in real life. Consequences were meant to be mediated and communicated by a parent. That's what it means to train, to equip, to discipline. Removing yourself from the equation doesn't make your child's life any easier. In fact, the Bible tells us the complete opposite. That it is actually loving to be involved in a parenting role in your child's life. Training them, disciplining them, teaching them. Psalms 94 verse 10 says, Blessed is the one whom you discipline, whom you teach out of your law, for he will find rest in the day of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says that if you love your son, you will be diligent to discipline him. You see, it's so important to know what God says in his word because when we hear things that culture says, it sounds loving, but it is not loving. God knows what love is. God has given us his word so that we may trust him and not in disobedience think that disobedience will get us what we want. It's not true for your kids, and it's also not true for you in parenting. We ought to obey what God has given us in Scripture. It doesn't work in any family to raise your kids this way, and more specifically, it doesn't work in God's family. Because the goal of parenting isn't just to not make your kids angry, but it's also to have a sense of direction, to work towards something to raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is to say that the goal of parenting is to raise disciples, men and women who follow Jesus with their whole heart. And as soon as we start talking about discipleship, as soon as we start talking about training and instruction, guardrails pop up. The bumpers of the bowling alley appear, and that means that at some point your kid's momentum is going to hit it. And it's not always going to be peaceful. There have been so few times where my children are weeping out of gratitude while I discipline them. And I don't understand. The Bible makes it sound like it should be this beautiful thing. But it's never happened. You see, God is the only sinless and perfect father. And yet, if you remember last week in the conclusion of Jonah, Jonah became angry towards God. In 1 Chronicles 13, King David, a man after God's own heart, is angry towards God. You see, a sinless God can still cause sinful people to be angry because sin never responds well to God. If God angered his children through their sin, we're going to have moments where our parenting angers our kids as well, which means we ought to consider the call to raise up our kids in the instruction and discipline of the Lord while trying to minimize the times where our sin provokes our children to anger in unnecessary or wrong-headed ways. And there can be times, I've done it as a father, where it's kind of like a badge of honor when you see a child begrudgingly disobeying you. And you kind of, in arrogance, pull out the thing like, deal with it, I'm your parent. And if all we have are verses 1 through 3, that might be a decent enough place to land the parenting plane. But doesn't the presence of verse 4 here at least cause us to stop 
and consider why our children are responding the way they're responding to our parenting. Could it be that we have sinned in our parenting and that is causing a provocation of anger? Could it be that we're being impatient with them? Could it be that we're being unreasonable with them, expecting a seven-year-old to act like a 17-year-old or treating an 18-year-old like an eight-year-old? Could it be in our discipline of them, we're the ones who lack discipline, disciplining when we are angry and when we lack self-control? You see, because we're not God, we can't control the emotions of our kids. And because we are not God, and we are in fact broken sinners, anger in our children should lead us to prayerfully reflect on our own actions to see if we have sinfully contributed to some sort of provocation of anger. You see, this is such a weird thing for God to put in. He gives so little direct time in this passage, Paul does to parenting, and he wants you to consider what it looks like to not provoke your child to anger, which means this, parents... Consider the experience your kids have to your parenting. And just think of it through this lens. Why are your children responding the way they're responding to you? Paul wants us to be thoughtful about this. So that we might be able to rest where we need to rest, but also to repent where we need to repent. And so don't provoke your children is the first command. But then Paul gives this direction, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the word Paul uses here, translated as raise them up, is the same word he's already used when he talked about husbands and wives. In chapter 5, verse 29, he says that the husband must nourish his wife as his own body. It's the same word. And so I like this word because it's visible. We get that idea of nourishment. And what are you nourishing your children with? What is their diet as it pertains to seeing, hearing, and reading about the gospel? You see, we have a wonderful church and a wonderful kids' ministry and youth Bible study, and we want you to use all of those things. But we also want you to realize that all of those opportunities are strategic partners in parenting and not sole providers of this kind of instruction. This kind of weight falls on the parents, and we as the church are here to help you, we're here to equip you, we're here to labor in those hard spots with you, but this training and instruction, dads, specifically, is something that you need to master and you need to do in your home. Is your home life distinct because of the gospel? Most of you, I'm sure, always had that friend whose house you went to when you were young and they always ate differently. Maybe they were ethnic or maybe they were the weird health nuts, but you know when you went to their house, what you were about to eat was different than what you would normally eat at home. Are our homes like that? Do people come in and see that what's nourishing, what's raising, what's training this family is different than what it is in my family? And if it's not, I encourage you to start small. To start, when I think back on my childhood, there are two things I remember. My parents are in here, so they're really nervous about what I'm about to say. I remember swift, hard-handed discipline. No, I remember, <laughs> I remember prayers at dinner and prayers at bed. Wasn't complicated, wasn't perfect, 
But it taught me two things. It taught me that my parents cared about me, and it taught me that God wanted to hear and wanted to help me. That's it. In my home, we've tried all sorts of methods of family worship, and depending upon the stage and age of your kids, this will look different too. And right now, this isn't a silver bullet for you to do, but it's something that works for us, is that whenever we gather for dinner, regardless of who's over, I pull out the Bible and I read a psalm or a portion of a psalm, including the weird ones, and I read it. And then we pray. And that's it. It's simple. It's imperfect. It's often interrupted by a hot dog being slung across the table. But it pleases God. And it sets a precedent and a pattern for my kids. This gospel, this is for real life. In all this chaos, this is what we cling to. So I encourage you to have those conversations with your spouses of what that might look like. But I want to say this before we move on here today. I am saying, because Paul and therefore God is saying in this text, that parents are to model their homes with the goal of raising disciples. Men and women who love Jesus and follow him with all of their life. But our parenting is never enough to save our kids. Only God can do that. Conversely, your parenting is never powerful enough to damn your children. If you look back at your life in parenting and you see a track record of failure, the gospel is so much stronger than that. Which is why we rest in what it is we're doing. Paul has given us to instruct and to discipline. He wants us to be parents who say, we have scattered the seeds and God, we trust you with our kids. You see, in parenting, God isn't calling you to trust in your parenting model. He's calling you to trust in him that he cares for the kids, that he has given you more than you can care for your kids. You see, when Sarah and I left the hospital with our firstborn, Owen, we had that distinct moment that maybe you had where we're like, what are we doing and why are they letting... It's harder for me to buy a TV at Best Buy than it is for me to leave a hospital with a kid. And I was like, what, what do we do? They're trusting us with this. And we just found out, we're talking with friends last night, the first like three weeks of our kid's life, we buckled him into the car seat wrong. We like filleted his legs out over the straps. But the thing was, the nurse came out with me and she looked at that and she's like, seems good. And then we went. And so like, I don't know. We're set up to fail in our parenting. And because of that, you look at culture, it is filled with parenting manuals and how-to and, and things that bless you and things that shame you. And they, everybody wants to be your guide when it comes to parenting. And as helpful as these are, and I encourage you to look at resources that are helpful in raising your kids, because it's so easy to just get a manual that says, if this, then this, it's really easy for Christians to neglect the heart of parenting itself, which is the gospel. Life doesn't prepare you for parenting, but the gospel does. Why? Because if all we had was this interaction with our parents, at best, they are wonderfully broken, and at worst, they are woefully wicked. But if you are a believer, when you have been brought into the grace of God by the blood of his son, you have been parented by a perfect parent. You have experienced 
experienced something which you can reflect on and draw on for the rest of your life. That becomes, considering how God saved you, becomes the rule of thumb for all of your parenting. And this is our final point today, is that the gospel is the full parenting experience. The gospel is the fullest parenting experience. We all have true and real relationships with our parents, but the gospel is the fullest parenting experience. You see, we need to be careful when we understand this. I was listening to a preacher once, and he was talking about God, and what he was trying to do was read his experience as a father into his understanding of God as father, which is just backwards and dangerous. So what it looked like was this. It says, God wouldn't do that to us because I wouldn't do that to my child. And what that does, it takes this experience of parenting and it confines God to that. That's like saying Tom Brady shouldn't throw the football that way because I throw the football this way. It's just wrong. It's not going to be helpful to anyone. Instead, what happens is we look at Scripture and God is eternally the Father. Before we were ever created... God was Father. This wonderful triune God existed. He is eternally Father and eternally perfect in His fatherhood, which means it is His fatherhood that shapes our understanding of parenting, not vice versa. We ought to consider how God, the infinite, perfect, loving Father, has loved us and work backwards from there. Our experience with God shapes our experience in parenting. And this has been Paul's point through the entire book of Ephesians. Do you remember how it started? You remember the hello that Paul gave the church in Ephesus? Look back at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. How did he do this? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's grand desire from eternity past to eternity future is to take those who are not his children and to make them his children through the perfect blood of his only son. And all through this book, we see how important this theme is. Paul's favorite title for God in Ephesians is God the Father. Eight times he reminds us of this relationship we have with God through and only through Jesus Christ. And this is so important because building on Ephesians chapter 1, he says, remember this. Remember this experience because it shapes everything in the life of the church. It shapes how you view your wife, it shapes how you view your kids, it shapes how you work at life, it shapes what the rest of life looks like, which we'll look at in the very concluding chapter. Nothing is of more practical importance than considering how God made us his children through Jesus. Do you understand how God fathered you? Do you know what went into that? Because as a Christian, it should lead us to worship, and as a parent... It should lead us to seeking to do whatever it is to make much of that in our home. That we have in the gospel everything we need to do exactly what Paul is calling us to do with the help of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church. 
You see, the principle for Christian parenting, you could have how-tos and stuff that fit under this, but the biggest principle that gives you freedom to look and act in real life with your child is this, is that we try to parent our children as God has fathered us. We try to parent our children as God has fathered us, which means we look at things like discipline that God has talked about, and we see that the discipline of God reminds us that God loves us. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God, as a loving father, disciplines us. But God, as a loving father, is also patient with us. He is also not quick to anger with us. He is long-suffering. He is kind. God's parenting was costly. To adopt you as his son, it meant the death of his son. You see, very frequently, do we ever even get off the couch to parent? Jesus came from heaven and earth to participate in this adoption process for us. When you consider the gospel, when you consider how God loved you through Jesus, it shapes things. It really does. There are some times where my kid's asking me questions. He says, why am I to do this? And I just say, can you trust me? Because there are times in life where God says the same thing to you. Why is this happening? And God says in Romans chapter 8, do you trust me? Then all these things you'll be more than conquerors. When God saves us, he gives us the Holy Spirit which helps us to obey. It's not a neutral playing field. We are wired to obey God through the help of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like for you to help your kids obey before there's discipline in an action? I just want to include one experience which really gets at the heart of why understanding the gospel shapes everything in our lives. And that's that a couple weeks ago we were on vacation uh, with my family in Idaho at a cabin. My daughter was sleeping uh, with her grandma and grandpa in the back and the rest of my family was in this bunk bedroom. So Sarah and I were on the bottom bunk, my son Owen was on the top bunk, and then Ellie was in the pack and play at the end of the bunk beds. And it was a thousand degrees in the room. And I had wrestled to fall asleep all night. And just as I drifted off to sleep, my six-year-old son climbs down off of the top bunk. And he's terrified. And he's crying. And he starts to nudge me. And he tries to crawl in bed with me when he is 1,001 degrees. And it's already 1,000 degrees. And I'm just, this isn't going to fly. But what I did is I said, come, come here. Cast your anxiety on the Lord. He cares for you. Lay next to me. And we'll deal with this in the morning. That's not at all what happened. I said, get back up into bed. <laughs> and he began to be more emotional, and which led me to become more frustrated because he's about to wake up Ellie. And if Ellie wakes up, pff, Chernobyl happens. And so we're just like, uh, this, this thing. And he, so he begins to tell me, Dad, there's a snake in my bed, which really helped calm me down because I'm like, that's really reasonable <laughs> that there would be a snake in your bed. 
And so I'm like, it was a dream, Owen. It was a dream. Get up there. And the more I protested, the more anxious he got, which meant the louder it got, which meant the more volatile the situation was. And then there was this point where he's trying to physically crawl in bed with me. And I'm physically like, this isn't going to work. And I'm keeping him away. And then the smell got to me. Here I have my son, who had spent all day swimming in the lake, presumably doing other things in the lake as well, running around the forest, playing in the dirt, sweating in a terrified stupor on the top bunk. And it was the most foul smell I've ever smelled on my child. And the more we wrestled to keep him out of bed, the more odious and foul the smell became. Until I was so frustrated with him, I grabbed him by his arm, I yanked him across in the hall into the bathroom, I flipped on the light and I began in frustration to clean up my son, wanting him to know. It's funny how we do this when we think. I wanted him to know how frustrated I was, like that would help. I wanted him to know how inconvenient he was being. And then I saw my son. I saw him standing there, half naked, blinking and exposed in the now all of a sudden bright light woken up in the middle of the night, terrified by a snake, going to his father only to be turned away because he was inconvenient and unclean. And in that moment, the foulest smell in the room was not my son. It was my heart. Because in that moment, I realized that my sin was far nastier than him. My frustrated fatherly heart was the most unrealistic thing in that room. And my response was far more frustrating to God than my son was to me. And I realized that God has never treated me like this. That when I go to God through the blood of his son in all of my sweating fervor, in all of my weakness, he takes me to the cross and he shows me Jesus and he says, he can take that for you. And I am never turned away. You see, if you ask me, I've read all the gospel-centered books. I'll call myself gospel-centered parenting. I wasn't being abusive or abrasive or not gospel-centered in this moment. But in this moment, what my parenting told my son was that in times where you are fearful and foul, deal with it on your own. There is nothing more opposite a gospel-centered parenting than when a child has that experience with their father. If that's you today, if you are fearful, if you feel covered in filth, come to this God through his son. Ephesians 2 describes your filth better than any stinky child ever can. You were dead in your trespasses and sins 
following the prince of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience and we're like the rest. But God in his great mercy, the greatness in which he loved you made you alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, because Jesus, the only Son of God, took the sin of those who are bathed in his blood, we go to God in all of our filth, in all of our weakness, and we receive his comfort. We receive his kind care to clean us, to counsel us, and to help us. I want my parenting to show my children that God, that father and so I gave my son to my wife who's far more gospel centered than me they sweated together on the other side of the bed and I lay there wrestling with this powerful encounter with God that I was having my filth was being exposed but the firm power of grace was being pressed into my heart by God in that morning I waited till Owen woke up and I called him to me and I, I said Owen I need to ask for your forgiveness I said, the way dad treated you last night is not how God treats us when we go to him with our sin. And I shouldn't have done it. And it was wrong. And I'm sorry. And see, the irony of gospel-centered parenting is that the best parenting is often done in moments of repentance. Because it's sinful parents pointing their kids to the only sinless parent that shows the distinction of the gospel. That we don't know everything. That there will be times where maybe even obeying me might hurt you. But there is a God, there is a Father, and obeying him will never hurt. Look to that, Dad. I'm not him. And he loves you more than I love you. You see, at the end of the day, our parenting is a placeholder. It's meant to prepare our kids to be parented by God. It's meant for us to trust, not in our parenting, but in the God who stands behind it. And as we prepare our kids to be parented by God, we know that in him, Lord willing and by his grace, they will find a better parent, a lovelier parent, a safer parent. You see, the point is, is that in Jesus Christ, God is preparing you for eternity. The same should be true for us as we raise our kids that in the great promised land that awaits, it will go well with our children because of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done to save us. We thank you that though we were vile, though we were unruly, though we were disobedient, though we were, as you say in Hosea, not my children, you made us your children through Jesus. Lord, before we ever parent others, help us to understand the way in which you have parented us in Jesus from college students to grandparents, from single people to married people. Lord, we need to know the riches of wealth in your gospel. 
Help us, Lord. For those parents that are in need of relief, bring them to the cross and take away the burden from them of feeling that they control the eternal destiny of their children and call them to hope in you. And repent where repentance is due, but to have infinite hope, for there was also hope for them. Lord Jesus, make our church and our parenting distinct in the gospel. Help us to parent our children as you have fathered us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.